Today we start eight weeks of walking through the book of Deuteronomy. I don't know if any of you have read the book of Deuteronomy or have listened to a series of sermons on the book of Deuteronomy, but we will not, unfortunately, be able to go through this verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're going to be doing it in large chunks. And so I would encourage you in the intervening weeks uh, to be reading these chapters of Deuteronomy that we're not going to be covering. We're going to be covering particularly Deuteronomy 4 today. So if you could turn in your pew Bibles to Deuteronomy 4, and then you can also note that there is a section for notes uh, in the back. And we've been doing that for several weeks now, but I did want to draw your attention to that because um, as things come up, you'll inevitably have questions as I have questions and continue to have questions as I walk through a text. I pray that you would be engaging with this chapter, engage with uh, the chapters that follow. But we're going to be looking at this book and consider how it applies to us, which is a very thorny question. And uh, in my email that I send out tomorrow, I'll deal with a couple of those thorny issues of how do you apply a book that was written to an ethnic people, namely Israel, and then how do you apply it to a predominantly Gentile audience uh, some 4,000 years later? And so the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of, next to Isaiah in the book of Psalms, Deuteronomy is actually one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. I didn't choose it because of that, but um, here it is in front of us. And so the people of Israel are on the banks of the Jordan River. This is just to give you a little context. They're on the banks of the Jordan River, and this is Moses before he dies. God has said, you're going to go up to a mountain, this mountain called Pisgah, and you're going to be able to overlook the promised land, but you're not going to be able to go into the promised land because you sinned against me while you were in the wilderness. And so Moses, knowing that his time is coming, is about ready to die. He sums up all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all of that history. He puts it in a series of sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. I actually, when we were at uh, Zion National Park, I saw that there was a, a guy with a, a Hebrew scriptures and he was sitting by the river. And I said, what do you what do you have there? And he says, it's the book of Psalms. And it turns out this is a rabbi. And I said, well, I'm going to be preaching on Deuteronomy on Sunday. Is there anything like what's what's Deuteronomy? If you were put it in a nutshell. So this is from a rabbi. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is get ready. <laughs> get ready. That is summed up in the book of Deuteronomy is get ready. Moses is saying, I'm going to die. I can't go with you across to the river. But get ready because God is going to deliver his promise to you. So how do you get ready? Well, you remember all that God has done for you starting in Egypt and now on the banks of the Jordan River. And you can be sure that the people that are right here on the banks of the Jordan River are wondering, hey, are we going to get to cross this river? Because our parents were right here just 40 years ago. They were on the banks of the Jordan River, too. And they sent out spies. Do you remember this story? They sent out spies to go test out the land and see if it was good. And they found out that, yes, it was good. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. So they sent out these 12 spies, each one from a different tribe of Israel. And those 12 tribes said, this land is amazing. And there were two guys, Caleb and Joshua, who said, this land is incredible. The people are huge. But God is going to give us this land. And then the ten other spies said, yeah, the people are huge and we're like grasshoppers. There is no way that we're going to be able to go into the promised land. 
And that's the story, right? That's the story of Deuteronomy. That's the story indeed of the entire scriptures. And that's the difference that we have to try to navigate throughout the Bible, but particularly in our book, Deuteronomy, is the question of, are you able? Are you able to do what God is calling you to do? And then we find throughout Scripture that, no, you're not able, but God is able. You see this mountain in front of you. You see this land in front of you. You see this promise. And God repeatedly throughout Scripture is saying, you are not able, but I am able to do this thing for you. And this is the same question that confronts us, not just in the book of Deuteronomy, is it? It's the same question that confronts us every morning of every day of the week. Is are you going to trust in your own ability, your own ability to obey God, your own ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Or are you going to rest on and rely on God's ability? See, salvation, when we talk about salvation, salvation is something that is done for us and to us and in us. And this is our story. And we see preeminently in, in Scripture that salvation, not just from Egypt, not just from Babylon, but from the problem of our own hearts is accomplished in Jesus. See, Jesus said that not one jot or tittle, not one iota, not one little crossing of the T or dotting of the I will be, will be done away with until it's fulfilled. And so we find that in Jesus, and this is the key to why Deuteronomy matters to us, is because Jesus has fulfilled all of these Old Testament expectations. You see... We walked through the book of Hebrews not too long ago. And do you remember what Hebrews talked about time and time? In fact, three times it talks about the Old Testament. All of these things are shadows of the reality. They're shadows. And so what we're doing right now is we're following along the shadow that's been cast by the Old Testament in the history of Israel. We follow along that shadow and we see the reality come in Jesus. Jesus is the one who's casting that shadow. So the temple, salvation from slavery, the all of the, the, the things that we see throughout the Old Testament of how Israel was to function, all these things point to the Messiah. And so we read Deuteronomy through the lens of Jesus. And it's important to understand how was Deuteronomy understood by Israel, but we look through the lens of Jesus to see how it is ultimately fulfilled in him. And so Deuteronomy is for them and it's for us because why? And how? How is Deuteronomy our book too and not just relegated to Israel? Well, because of the spirit that we celebrated last week. The spirit himself has given each of us life who have confessed their sin and put their faith in Jesus. That spirit has given us life and he's grafted us in. Us wild olive shoots is what Paul said. He, he's taken us and he's grafted us into the people of Israel. And therefore, this book is our book. We can't just be, hey, I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't read the Old Testament because it's weird. You can't understand the New Testament until you read the Old Testament because Jesus himself was confined and constrained by the Old Testament witness to who he was. And so that's why we spend time in hard books. And so, yes, this will be a hard book to get our minds around because, quite frankly, we haven't read enough of the Bible. We haven't read enough of the Old Testament. And so as Gentiles who have been grafted into the people of God, Deuteronomy is just as much our book as it was their book. And indeed, I would say even more so. Those who have 
believed and seen the reality of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, has shined in our hearts so that we could see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The veil has been removed so that we see Jesus. And so as I read Deuteronomy, it's going to always and ever be through the lens of what Jesus has done to fulfill this book. So all I'm going to do is I'm just going to simply walk through uh, most of the chapter. I'm not. I'm actually going to cut short at verse 41. So if you notice in your pew Bible... I'm just going to walk through each of these paragraphs. And I'm going to just draw out and give a short explanation of each one of these paragraphs. And this is why I was drawing attention to the notes section. Because you're not going to remember all these five points. I'm doing a little... Uh, preachers aren't supposed to do five points because it's too many. Um, you're supposed to do stick to three, but this merits five points. So you're going to want to write these down. So I'm just going to read through par- the paragraphs. And then we're going to uh, draw out how does this apply. So there's going to be five points here. So the first point comes from chapters 1 through 8. 1 through 8. And I summarize this paragraph, this first point, by the law means life. The law means life. So Deuteronomy 4, Moses writes... And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So the law means life. Notice I didn't say that the law gives life. The law means life. The law is the conduit by which who ultimately God is the one who gives life. God is the one who gives life. And so you remember this book in God's law from Mount Sinai all came after. It came after he saved his people from Egypt. So they didn't do this law so that God would then save them from Egypt. They had nothing to offer, and God said, and what does he say in Exodus 20 before he gives the Ten Commandments? And the same thing that you'll see in Deuteronomy 5, the next chapter, before he gives those Ten Commandments, those Ten Words from the mountain. He says, Behold, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. So we don't obey God so that he looks at us and says, Hey, I'm going to I'm going to save you. No, God saves us independently of our obedience by his mercy and his grace. And we'll get more into that as we get into the book of Deuteronomy. How is that even possible? 
Because God demands righteousness. So how is it possible that he saves us apart from us doing something? Well, so the question then comes, what then is the law? What is the law? What's the purpose of the law? Well, Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is holy. The law is holy and righteous and good. How? Why is that? Why is it righteous and good? Because I, I thought it kind of condemns us and shows us what's in our heart. Well, that's exactly right. The law reveals what's in our hearts, reveals that we really don't want to live how God has shown us that life. He says, behold, I I lay before you life and death. Choose life. Do these things so that you can live. And you and I don't really like that a lot, do we? We say, no, 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 I I do. I'm trying my best. Well, in those small moments when we don't, that shows that we don't. Right? And so what does the law do? The law shows us our hearts, but even more so it reveals the heart of God. The law stems from and flows from the very heart of God to show us what does it look like when God shows up? It looks like God loving his neighbor as himself. It looks like God when he shows up on the scene and he gives sight to the blind and and breaks the chains of slavery and he takes care of the orphan and the widow. And in fact, he castigates the religious leaders and those who would say, I know all of this scripture here, but you're celebrating feasts while other people are going hungry outside. It looks like when God shows up that he's not really keen on how much you know and how much rather than in how much you love and how much you love your neighbor and how much you confess and how much you show and beat your chest and say, I am not worthy. That's what it looks like when God shows up, and that's what the law does. It stems from this heart. It reveals what God's heart is for the world that's broken and shattered. See, other gods of the ancient Near East, they didn't reveal their will. What they did is they had priests, and you and I would go to a priest and say, Hey, I've really got a lot of problems on my farm. I need your help. Uh, What do I need to do? And... On Monday, that priest would say, well, you need to do kill these three things and then bring the blood to me and all these things. And then on Wednesday, he might say something else to somebody with the same problem. And so the ancient Near East priests, they didn't have a text like we have. And so we can't shirk the fact that God has given us a written word so that we don't have to be left wandering. Boy, and wondering. Right. And that's why verse two is so important. What you say? You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Right? So God graciously gives his law to say, this is how you ought to live. You ought to live differently than the world around you. See, they took a day of rest called the Sabbath. Unlike the world around them, they they didn't kill their children like some of the religions at that time. Baal, for example, and Molech, they had to kill their children as sacrifices. They didn't do that. They didn't eat certain foods. They didn't wear certain clothes to be able to say this people is a people set apart. And so the law reveals the heart of God and it shows what kind of nation is this that lives so differently than we do, who doesn't have to work seven days a week. And grind it out, but yet God still blesses them. And so that's the point. So then the law reveals the heart of God. 
guides and convicts us believers, but then ultimately it points to a Messiah. That's what the law does. Reveals God's heart, guides and corrects you and me, and then it, but ultimately points to the Messiah. You see, we don't follow the law like Israel followed the law because its purpose had been fulfilled. The shadow was fading. It was shortening because the sun had come and fulfilled all of those things. And so we don't go back to the shadows. And that's what Hebrews continued to say. Remember that? He said, don't go back to those elementary principles. Don't go back to the shadows. That's not the reality. The reality has come. Celebrate God fulfilling all of his requirements in Jesus. And Jesus says, love God, love people. Who is God? Jesus. Love God. Love people. And so if you love God, then you will love people. And if you don't love people, then you don't love God. That's why those are the same thing in Jesus' paradigm. So because the law means life, secondly, we see in the next verses, 9 through 14, that it's meant to be a ministry of all people. A ministry of all people. Verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice and he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So even here, embedded within this, and I tried to highlight that in the way I read, but even embedded in here, yes, the priestly system was, was massive in the Old Testament, but even here... It was never intended to be relegated just to the elite, just to the priests. Even here, right? Parents are to be the primary disciple makers of their children. They are to tell their kids about the great and awesome fear and dread that took place on the mountain. The words that they heard, the covenant that was given to them. Notice this. There was no kind of, hey, I got to go through a priest. No, there was there was a ministry of all people. I think that's very appropriate on Father's Day, right? Because it's reiterated again in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 says this, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, go to the priest and he'll tell you. Wait on Sunday and the pastor will tell you. No, no, no. Then you are shall then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous 
against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So my friends, did you hear this this depth of experience that these parents have? It's not just meant to be some kind of cognitive download into our children's lives. For our ministries to be real and effective in our children's lives, we have to own this. That God has redeemed me. He's redeemed us so that my God can become your God. Ministers, then, help and instruct parents to do this work. Right? They help and instruct, but primarily so that others can experience and so that others can be ministers. So it doesn't hinge upon only the ministry of the priests. But, as we've already talked about, this, this is not meant to be read apart from the New Testament. So our ministry isn't just for parents. That would be a problem. Why do you think Paul says to Timothy time and time and time again, you are my son in the faith? He could have just said, hey, thanks for being my disciple. I'm so glad I got to teach you. No, he says, you're my son, and I have taught you the statutes of the Lord. And so, so when Jesus shows up, he, he says, these are my father and my brothers and my mother and my, my, my sisters, the ones who do the will of God. And so each one of us is called to minister. Each one of us is to see sons and daughters in the faith. See, it's not only the job of those who are called into ministry. Because the fact of the matter is, and this is what I started out earlier before we started our service, is that every single one of us has been called by God to be ministers and priests to God. And a lot of the times the impotence of the church is because Christians don't own that. Christians relegate it to the priests or relegate it to the ministers, to someone else, instead of saying the Spirit of God that has called that pastor is the same Spirit of God that dwells within you and calls you to, yes, say something to your coworker. Who's going to die and go to hell if they don't know Jesus? The same spirit of God that calls the priests is the same spirit of God that has been poured out on all flesh at Pentecost that we celebrated last week. You see, let me just make one one last point here about parenting for fathers and mothers. It's true that our primary calling is to our children. It's primary but it's not the only calling that we have either. It's primary, but it's not the only calling. So we can't just say, well, I'm just focusing only on my children. Let me, let me challenge you here a little bit. And I feel the same challenge. That we are to primarily disciple our children, but we're not only to disciple our children. One of the best ways to disciple our children is to go and go out into the world with our children and disciple others to to show them to take our biological children with us and see spiritual children be born again as they repent and believe and i promise you that as your children see you be faithful in sharing the gospel laying down your life serving people in the strength that god supplies that when they see that 
That's going to mean more to them than going through line by line. They are going to see that Jesus is more valuable to you than being thought well of in the eyes of others. And so I feel this burden and and I want you all to feel this burden too. That it's not just for parents. That we are to be we are called to, to be spiritual parents to others. Every single one of us. But then we see in the next paragraph that while it's a ministry of all people, there's a warning. And that warning is watch out. Watch out is point number three. Watch out verses 15 through 24. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me. This is Moses speaking. The Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget The covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So the warning is this. If even the leader Moses, if even Moses himself was not exempt from rebellion and punishment, God's people ought to not think That even the seemingly trivial disobediences that no one sees, that God's just going to kind of wink at those or overlook those. See, remember, do you remember why Moses can't go into the promised land? It's because his motives were impure. He didn't trust God. Right? That, That was the problem. And so Moses is saying, please don't do what I did. Trust God. Throw yourself on God who can deliver this land to you. Don't think that if you strike the rock, then you have the strength to be able to do it. Don't be like me. Watch yourselves. Did you hear how many times it says, beware, beware, beware. So watch out. Watch out. Beware of idolatry. My friends, we're just as prone to this today. See, God makes it clear that you didn't see an image of me. In fact, all of the other gods have idols. All of them are fashioning these idols of the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, all over. It's comprehensive in what he's saying. He says, don't do that. Don't be like the others. See, you and I can do this as well. We're prone to put our confidence in things that we see. Confidence in the things that we can touch. And so modern-day idolatry looks a lot like having enough money in your 401k or a bigger paycheck. Wealth that you can touch, that you can see. 
Being able to be thought well of in the eyes of others. I think that that's a huge idol here in the South. Is that we want to care so much that that I fit in and that people don't think ill of me. That's idolatry because you are putting your faith in an image, namely a human being. You're saying what they think about me is more valuable than what the unseen God, the all-powerful one, thinks about me. And we have to confess that every day. That God, forgive me for caring more about what my neighbor thinks about me, thinking that I am weird, than you. And so we have to be careful that we also need to beware lest the idols creep in and steal our joy. So we're to watch out. Right? And that should produce that watching out, that being, being aware of our own proneness towards sin ought to, fourthly, make us humble. So the fourth point is be humble. <laughs> be humble. I wish I could give a sermon on, on humility here, but I can't. So I'm just going to lead myself to these six verses here in uh, verse 25 to 31. Be humble. He says this after he says, watch out and beware. When your father, well, I'm sorry, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it. But will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. See, the question is not if they will rebel. right? Moses makes it very clear that they will rebel. See, God foretells that his people will do the very things that he warns them against. He says, don't worship idols. And he says, You're going to worship idols. And when you worship those idols, I'm going to send you into a land to where you will really worship idols. And you'll serve people that worship idols. You will be cast out of the land that I'm giving you. I'm going to give it to you, but only temporarily. So even here, the promised land is only a shadow of a greater reality. Because they don't find complete rest for their souls until the perfect and true Israel Shows up in the womb of a virgin. All of this hinges upon Messiah coming to fulfill what Israel could not do. Right? Let that sink in too that that Moses is saying all of this before the judges, before King David, before King Solomon, before all the rebellious king. Moses is saying that you will rebel. Not a question of if, just a question of when you will rebel. And we see here that God is a consuming fire. So they've gone from the iron furnace into the hands of a consuming, fiery God. A God that we ought to revere and ought to fear. And yet, and yet, verse 31, right? He's a consuming fire, but, verse 31, 
The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So just as the initial freedom from slavery was dependent on the Lord, the way that God's people will arrive completely and truly into the promised land of rest, the new heavens and new earth that we just saw a couple weeks ago in Revelation, this new heavens and new earth, this promised land, the way that God's people will enter that land is always and ever through God's power, God's strength, his persevering love. And that's our last point, our last paragraph. The Lord is the ground, the reason, and the goal of all that we read here in this chapter. The Lord is the ground. That it means he is the basis upon which this chapter, this Bible, our experience as people stand. He's the reason, and he is the goal. Let's look at 32 through 40. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you. Since the day that God created man on the earth and asked from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice. You heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Do you hear that? The Lord is the one who drove out the nations before them. The Lord is the one who freed them from slavery in Egypt. The Lord is the one. He is the one who exercises his right arm of power and breaks the chains of slavery. He's the one who's going to clear out the land of Jericho not too long from now. He is the one who goes before them. He's the one. He's the reason. He's the ground. He's the basis upon which they stand. He says, yes, these nations are mightier than you. That's the point. Your sin is greater than your ability. That's the point. God is saying, I'm I'm, I'm done with you trying to rely on your own ability to do what you think that you can do in your own strength. You're going to go into the land and you're going to see that they are greater and mightier than you. And I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to give you this promised land because I am gracious and loving. Not because you're great and awesome, but because I am great and awesome. And they're going to experience true rest. And see, my friends, the goal... The goal is not sheer obedience. It never was. It never was. 
The God of the Bible is not trying to make your life and my life difficult. He's not standing in heaven with lightning bolts as this blasphemy that's typical in our, in our culture of, oh, he's going to strike you down. No, God is not up in heaven with lightning bolts saying, okay, yeah, you, you make a mistake and I'll make sure. Or if somebody's having fun over here, I'm going to make sure that they don't have fun anymore. That's not what we see here throughout Deuteronomy, uh, a book replete of law. He's explained what a full and meaningful life looks like. It looks like trusting in the unseen, the miraculous, that which is outside of us. It looks like not worrying when things don't go the way we planned. Verse 40, as you reflect on all of these things that God has done in redeeming you out of Egypt, Israel, as you reflect on all that he will do to redeem you out of slavery in Babylon, Israel, Christian, as you reflect on all that God has done to break the chains of sin in your life. Therefore, verse 40, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. See, your obedience is not about you either. Because what does this chapter say and what does the Christian life say is you are to obey to show that you don't rely on yourself. That's the point. The law, our obedience is not meant to just end with us. It's meant to point to someone who's more sufficient. The righteous one. Jesus. And so, real quick, I think in all of this chapter, it's trying to bring one point home. So I've had five points, but here is the one point. The most important point of this is that this chapter, indeed, the whole of Scripture, is about intimacy with God. We can know a lot of these facts. We can know a lot of these things that happen and will happen. But God is calling you and me to have a deeper intimacy with God. And if you don't slow down, you could have missed it. Verse 4, you who held fast to the Lord your God, I am giving you the land. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Verse 10, you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. He was in your midst. Verse 11, you came near to him. Verse 12, you heard from the mountain. So my friends, when you read scripture... Are you pursuing an intimacy with God? Or are you just trying to get more information? Because information by itself will damn you. If it does not lead to a deeper love and communion with God. That was always and ever the point of God communicating with us. To condescend and to come to us in the word made flesh, Jesus. So that we might know him. So my friends, I think that this intimacy with God. And as it pertains to us as a church. God is calling us to pray. To pray more diligently. I know that you all pray in your homes, with your families, at your workplaces. But I'm asking you, as a church, to pray together. Every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, we gather in this little room back here. And what we're trying to do as a church, as I said at the very beginning, is something that doesn't depend upon us. 
We're asking God to supernaturally break through the sin that we've already seen in our neighborhood, both here at the church and our neighbors that we live around, the coworkers that we interact with day after day. My friends, I'm, I'm asking us as a church to be diligent, to pray together. So I'm asking you to join me every Sunday at 10 o'clock in this room to pray together, to, to seek the face of God. To do this together. To throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, God, I want to see you do miraculous things in our church and in my life. And we do that together as a church. And then secondly, I want to challenge all of us to push, to push out into our neighborhoods, into this neighborhood, into our, into our places where we work, to, to stop being slaves to the idolatry of wanting to be thought well of by others. To push out and be ministers. To, to trust the Spirit of God that dwells within us. And say, I don't really want to say this. I, I think I'm really nervous right now, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to lovingly talk to this person. And not just push out. Because if we're only pushing out and feeling like I've got to, I've got to be a missionary without pushing in. Without saying, I want to experience intimacy with God who is near. God wants us to share what we've experienced. He doesn't just want your sheer obedience. He wants you to experience intimacy with him to then say, I found water. I found bread. Let me share it with you because it will satisfy every longing that you have. That's our call. To lean on God. To lean on God and know that he will show up. He promises us. He will show up if we draw near to him. So I'm begging you, let us pray together. Let us press into the Lord together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. Thank you so much for the sacrifices that they have made to relinquish goods and services that they could get at any number of churches. And instead they have, in a longing to see you at work in their lives and the lives of their loved ones and those they don't know yet, to see the, the glory of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, I thank you for these beloved people, for these beloved brothers and sisters who love you enough to, to sacrifice who love you enough to seek your face and to rely on you and to know that you're honored in our obedience, and yet we don't rely on that obedience. And so we thank you for the only righteous one, Jesus, who we sing his praises and we pray because of him. We come to you, we approach your throne of grace because of Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.